For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. So we're in the book of Acts. We've seen the Apostle Paul become a Christian, turn from a life of persecuting Christians. We've seen him go learn, learn to do ministry and have early, early success here. Back near his hometown, we saw him, him at Antioch as a leader there. We saw him out on his first trip to go plant churches around uh, mainly Turkey, modern-day Turkey. We saw him take a second journey where he went through Turkey to those same churches, and then he went down into Greece. And last week, we finished up with Paul coming to the end of his second journey at the end of Acts chapter 18. And that's where we'll pick up this week where he goes on the road yet again for a third time, Paul's third journey. So we'll start at the end of Acts chapter 18. Remember last week we, he, we left him at Antioch. That was his home base. That's the church that originally sent him out in the first place. And it says, after spending some time in Antioch, and the year here is probably about 53 AD. After spending some time in Antioch, Paul went back through Galatia and Phrygia, visiting and strengthening all the believers. So he's moving back through churches he planted on the first missionary journey. He started his second journey by going back through those churches, encouraging the believers there. And then he starts his third one by going right back through those same cities, right down that road, right through his hometown of Tarsus. He never talks about what he did at Tarsus there. It's kind of mysterious, Paul's relationship with his family and whatnot, but... He moves through here planting churches, uh, well, through churches he planted, encouraging the believers. He didn't just plant churches and leave them behind. But Luke tells us, meanwhile, while Paul is on the way west from Antioch, meanwhile, at Ephesus, some things are happening. Remember, at the end of the second journey, Paul made a brief stop at Ephesus, did a little bit of teaching there. He's like, look, I'll come back if God wills. He left his fellow Christian workers, Priscilla and Aquila, the husband and wife power couple. He leaves them there at Ephesus, apparently to, do, to try to get things going there. And it says that a Jew named Apollos arrived at Ephesus. Now let's talk a little bit about Ephesus because that's going to be our location for all the action happening tonight. Okay, Ephesus is such an unbelievable archaeological site. F.F. F. Bruce calls it an archaeologist's dream. This is massive. You can see they've excavated this entire main street going right down through town. You can see it heads down to a very famous ancient structure called the Library of Celsus, which would have been built just a little bit after Paul was here at Ephesus. Very famous structure. Here's the ancient Ephesus marketplace, the Agora, again with the, the tall Library of Celsus in the background there. Ephesus is the third or fourth largest city in the Roman Empire, depending on who you read. About a quarter million people. It's third or fourth. It's either that or Antioch, where Paul's coming from. And in fact, Alexandria is the second most important city in the Roman Empire. So next to Rome, we've got the, the three major cities in all the Roman Empire mentioned in these two verses here. Antioch, Ephesus, and Alexandria. Strabo said Ephesus was second in importance only to Rome. Well, it was a major center of religion, especially the worship of Artemis, the goddess Artemis, which we'll talk more about that later, including the famous temple to Artemis. It was also a center of magic. And now I'm not talking about magic, the gathering here. Oh, do they play D&D too? No. This is the real kind of magic, the kind with spells, the kind where you communicate with demons and try to get evil spirits to do your will. In fact, remember how uh, the church at Corinth we studied last week, 
To Corinthianize came to be synonymous with living this just really raw party lifestyle. Um, the, the, the phrase Ephesian writings came to be known as a term for magic scrolls, magic papyri, that sort of thing. They were so famous for their, their magic there. And, and this is right what, what Paul's going to walk into. That becomes important in our narrative as well. It's also an important financial center. So it's very wealthy here, uh, very influential. And as a free and wealthy city, Rome gave a lot of autonomy to Ephesus. They were not directly under the, the rule of Rome. They were, able, they were kind of self-governed. And yet that freedom was limited. And if you really messed up bad, Rome could just come in and take away that freedom. And we're going to see that come up in this story tonight as well. But they're at Ephesus, and it says that Apollos arrives from Alexandria. So he arrives on a boat, apparently, to Ephesus. This was a port town at the time. Uh, in fact, today it's about seven miles from the Mediterranean because the river flowing through Ephesus um, drops a bunch of silt, and so they would have to go through and dredge the harbor to keep it a, a, a port town. And uh, by, even by, by this time here, the city was starting to go on the decline. They were starting to lose their port. They were kind of worried. They were, they were actually pretty dependent on religious tourism. And that also becomes important in this story as well. But at the time, you could sail right up to Ephesus. And Apollos lands there. It says that he's from Alexandria, a major center of learning. And he arrives at Ephesus. It says he was an eloquent, eloquent speaker. He knew the scriptures well. So this guy was a good teacher. He'd been taught the way of the Lord, and he taught others about Jesus. So he was a Christian teacher. This guy apparently is a believer. He had an enthusiastic spirit. He also taught the way of Jesus, it says, with accuracy. So he's looking pretty good. Enthusiastic, good speaker, accurate, teaches about Jesus. There's only one problem. He's a little confused on some things. It says he only knew about John's baptism. And so Luke doesn't tell us what exactly the nature was of his confusion. But, you know, John the Baptist, he was such a major influential teacher that by this time, John the Baptist and Jesus had both been dead for 20 years. And yet we still find people here at Ephesus that had some sort of mix of stuff John the Baptist taught who, who pointed the way forward to Jesus and stuff that Jesus taught. In fact, you have some people that had only heard of John and hadn't heard of Jesus that we're going to meet later. And so he had, he had some deficiency in his teaching, and Luke doesn't really give us too much detail about what that is. I guess he, it wasn't that important. What is important is this. It says, Priscilla and Aquila, they heard Apollos speaking, preaching boldly in the synagogue. And they saw, they saw real potential in this guy, but they saw he was off base on some things. So they took him aside. They didn't embarrass him in front of everybody or get up to try to debate him. They took him aside. They explained the way of God even more accurately. And Apollos, apparently he took it from them. You know, so he was a good teacher. He wasn't just a good speaker, knew his word, good at apologetics, clear, enthusiastic. But he also was humble enough to learn. You need humility if you're going to become a good teacher of the word. And he was willing to learn. Well, he'd been thinking, actually, about going to Achaia. That's Corinth. That was the province where Corinth was in, and it's obvious that's where he's headed. he wants to head toward. Corinth, also a very important city. And the brothers and sisters in Ephesus encouraged him to go there. They're like, Corinth, they could use all the help that they can get. You should definitely go there. And so they wrote to the believers in Achaia, asking him 
asking them to welcome him. Yeah, sometimes if you didn't know a group, you'd need a letter of recommendation. You know, we, we kind of have this for job interviews, right? Or if you're applying for a scholarship, you might need recommendations or references. Well, you know, they knew, the people at Corinth, they knew Priscilla and Aquila. Remember, they were there last week with Paul, we saw. And so maybe there were some others there as well, but they wrote these letters of recommendation to get Apollos in the door to say, this guy's not some crackpot teacher. This guy knows his stuff. You should listen to him. Um, you know, later on, Paul's like, look, I'm not like other teachers that need letters of recommendation, he says in 2 Corinthians 3. He says, I don't need a letter. You guys are my letter. I, I led you all to Christ. But Apollos apparently did need a letter of recommendation. And so they gave him one. And he sailed away. And when he arrived there, he proved to be of great benefit to those who, by God's grace, had believed. And so God used him powerfully there. One thing he did was refute the, the Jewish opponents there. Remember, we read about them last week. With powerful arguments in public debate. Trained in rhetoric, apparently. Using the scriptures, he explained to them that Jesus was the Messiah, just like Paul was doing last time. And so, you know, Apollos was a sh really sharp speaker, very charismatic. And as it turns out, this actually, the, the, the carnal Corinthian believers saw him, and they just used this as one more reason to fight with each other. Some people are like, I think Paul's better than him. I'm like, well, I think Apollos is better than, than Paul. And other people are like, well, remember when Peter was here? I followed Peter. You can see this backdrop. This, this makes more sense now. This debate going on right in the first pages of the letter to the Corinthians where Paul writes, look, some are saying I'm a follower of Paul, but others are saying I follow Apollos. Others are like, well, I follow Peter. Others are like, well, I follow Christ. <laughs> and he's like, look, we're all servants of Christ. I planted Apollo's water. God causes the growth. Why are you dividing over this? This is just evidence of your immaturity. But you see Paulus going there, preaching about Christ. You know, Apollos, you know, this is in our introduction to Apollos, who appears other places like here. But it's also, I think he's an example of a good, humble, sharp, knowledgeable in the scriptures Bible teacher. Well, meanwhile... While Apollos was at Corinth then, we're back over here at Paul. And it says that Paul traveled through the interior regions. He's moving and making his way through southern Turkey, through these churches he had planted. Remember on the second journey, he wanted to go into Asia. That was Ephesus. But the spirit blocked him. And so he had to go another way. Well, now he, he gets to go there. He went until he reached Ephesus on the coast where he found several believers. Okay. But as Paul starts talking to these believers, he's like, something seems a little funky here. What exactly do they believe in? There's something wrong here. And so he starts trying to troubleshoot what's, what's happening with these, these so-called believers. He says, guys, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they're like, No. We haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So these guys seem a little more confused than Apollos, right? He was teaching the way about Christ accurately. These guys have never even heard about the Holy Spirit. This is like being like, wait, so you guys are married. Something seems wrong here. You're not acting like it. Did you have sex when you got married? And they're like, we haven't even heard there is such a thing as sex. 
what are you talking, what is this thing you're speaking of? And he's like, oh, okay. <laughs> now we're talking. He says, well, then what, what baptism did you experience with it? Because it obviously wasn't Christian baptism. And they're like, well, the baptism of John, the Baptist. All right. So he says, oh, I see the, I see the problem here. John's baptism called for repentance from sin. Remember John the Baptist went around baptizing people? That's how he got his name, the baptizer. He says, John himself, though, told people to believe in the one who would come later, meaning Jesus. So it doesn't even sound like they really even knew who Jesus was or the Holy Spirit. These do not sound like Christian believers. I mean, obviously, I mean, if they'd heard John, John did teach the one coming after me, He's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. I just baptized with water. And so he's, he's going to bring the Holy Spirit, though. That's, that's the one I'm pointing to. He must become greater. I must become less, he says. And so they apparently just had only heard part of John's teachings, and they hadn't heard the full, the full set here. And so Paul explains to them Jesus, and he teaches them about Jesus, and apparently he leads them to Christ. It says, as soon as they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Remember what Jesus said, go into all the world, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to do everything I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the very end of the age. So that's what Paul's doing here. He's baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then Paul laid his hands on them, and the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in other tongues and prophesied. Just like we saw with the Jews in Acts chapter 2, and the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8, and the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. This looks to be some sort of, um, maybe another one of those. It's, it's a weird, kind of weird story here. But they speak in tongues, just like they did in all those other cases, probably affirming the, the teaching and, and ministry of Paul here. And it says, Luke says, there was about 12 men in all. Okay, one thing we need to point out here is this is different from Pentecostal teaching on what's known as the second baptism. There's, a, there's kind of a, a swath of Christianity that teaches that when you become a Christian, you know, that's all well and good, and you actually receive the Holy Spirit at that point. But then you might come to a point 10 or 20 years later where you get spirit baptized. And that's where you speak in tongues, and that's where you just kind of, it's like you're kind of like a second-class Christian until you take this upgrade to the next level. And so they use passages like this to support that teaching. Well, there's some problems here. For one, these guys, they, they had never heard of the Holy Spirit, and they didn't know Jesus. So, I mean, there's, it doesn't even see, if this was not Christians who were laboring along and then got spirit baptized, these were like not even believers. This is kind of these, these transitionary time where, you know, it's moving from the Old Testament to the New Testament. So they weren't believers. There was also no delay between their belief and their speaking in tongues. They got baptized, and then immediately Paul lays hands on them, and they speak in tongues. It's also a narrative passage, and narrative passages describe what happens, not prescribe what is supposed to happen. We need to look at the teaching portions of Scripture to see what's supposed to happen, what, what does happen. And that's, that's why we have the epistles and the teachings of the apostles are preserved in that way. So scripture teaches clearly that all Christians have the Holy Spirit. Paul writes to the Romans, remember that those who do not have the Spirit of Christ living them do not belong to him at all. The moment you believe, the moment you put your trust in Jesus, you're forgiven for all of your sins. 
And because you're cleansed now, God can send his spirit to live inside of you. A, a personal being, the Holy Spirit, comes to live inside of you. That's a significant event. He's never going to leave. He's never moving out, according to Scripture. That's permanent. And Christians, therefore, if there's, if there's someone living inside of you, shouldn't you have daily personal experience of that personal being? Yes, you should. The Holy Spirit does all kinds of things in our lives. He assures us of our sonship and our daughtership before God. He illuminates the Scriptures. You ever wonder why you read the Scriptures? You can't tell what they mean? And you become a Christian, and then all of a sudden it starts to make sense. It's the Holy Spirit. He, he gives Christians spiritual gifts they can use to serve God. He guides us. He gives us direction in our lives. He transforms us more and more into the image of Christ. He empowers us to serve God. He, he, he helps us to experience God as he pours out God's love into our hearts. This is why we can experience God in a personal way and not as some distant, abstract, theological concept. And he also helps us to pray because we're weak and we don't know how to pray and we have the spirit of prayer. And so these are the sorts of things we should be experiencing as Christians. This is your right. This is the, the blessing of God, the greatest thing about the new covenant. And so what if I don't? What if I don't? Some Christians are like, I mean, I read about the Holy Spirit in a book. I hear people talk about him, but no personal experience? You know, one possibility is you don't have the Holy Spirit. Maybe you're not even a Christian, according to Romans 8 9, right? So maybe you need to call out to God and say, I want to accept Christ. I, I want that Holy Spirit indwelling me, God. And Jesus said, the Holy Father will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask generously. Or maybe you're a Christian that has the Holy Spirit, but you just don't have any sort of ongoing experience of the Holy Spirit is not a very real, present thing in your life. I guess that's possible. Um, and if that's the case, I would, I would talk to God about that. I would also talk to a mature Christian believer about that and tell, tell him, I, I want to have this. I want to have, you know, Scripture talks, it, Paul commands the Ephesians. He says, be filled with the Holy Spirit, continually, ongoing. And filling is not where you get more of the Holy Spirit, but it's where the Holy Spirit gets more of you. And it's, the Holy Spirit's important. It's the lifeblood of the Christian. He, he is at the center of everything. And so Paul goes into Ephesus. He goes to the synagogue and he preached boldly for the next three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. And so like his normal practice, he goes and he talks to the Jews there. They let him go three months. Sometimes he doesn't even make it a couple of weeks. And he's arguing persuasively. We've seen this before. But some became stubborn, rejecting his message and publicly speaking against the way. And so we see a, a polarization like always happens as well, in these things, as well as these things, right? Some are responding to the message. Others are getting more and more angry. That's offensive to the religious person to think that grace alone is the only way of salvation, to think the way of Christ, that that's the way to God, that's offensive to the proud religious person. And so some just didn't like what he had to say. They began publicly speaking against the way. That's what they called it. 
And so Paul finally decides to leave the synagogue, like he's done before in other cities, and he took the believers with him. And he held daily discussions at what's called the lecture hall of Tyrannus. Now, we have not uncovered the lecture hall of Tyrannus yet at Ephesus. There's a lot more digging to do there, though. But that's where he went. Now, what was the lecture hall of Tyrannus? Well, it belonged to a guy named Tyrannus. That literally means the tyrant. So it sounds like he was the teacher here. And I don't know if that was a nickname his students gave him, the tyrant. But if you were like, an, like a, a, a teacher, you needed a place, okay? And so this was his place. This apparently, it sounds like where he taught, maybe he just owned it and rented it out to teachers. But um, a lot of people think that what Paul would do then is he would use, so normally they would teach, the, 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 the lectures would be in the morning at these places until about 11 a.m. Then it would just get hot. And then, so what Paul would probably do, a lot of people think, is that he would work in the mornings as like a tent maker. And then at 11 a.m., he would drop his tent stuff, and then he would head across town to the lecture off Tyrannus, and he would teach all afternoon. Some say from maybe 11 to 4 o'clock, so about five hours of lecture when most people were resting. A lot of them would take a nap. One commentator says there, were, there would have been more people asleep at 1 p.m. than 1 a.m. in ancient Ephesus because they took their siesta in the middle of the day. They didn't have air conditioning or anything like that. Eat lunch, go to sleep. So Paul, though, he'd be up with his, with his Christian workers that he was training there, and uh, they were hitting the books. In fact, it, it go, he goes on to say that he was at Ephesus for three years, a full two year, two plus years here lecturing, probably six days a week at this lecture hall. That's some serious teaching of the word. This went on for the next two years so that people throughout the province of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. And so you can see Ephesus there on the left. And what we see is that all these cities in the area around Ephesus Churches started being planted there. People met Christ. New disciples were being made there. In fact, if you read Revelation 1-4, he says to the seven churches in Asia, and then he lists them, and he starts with Ephesus, and then the next six, you can just travel right up the road from Ephesus, go clockwise, and you'll find each of the next six cities that are the recipients of the book of Revelation. Smyrna, Pergamum, Sardis, etc., including Colossae, we've actually got an epistle. A letter in the New Testament is written to Colossae. Philemon lived in Colossae as well, so we got really two letters to that church. So significant unleashing of the power of the Spirit going on. We got a real spiritual movement taking place here, simply with churches meeting house to house, and also a centralized training center equipping, teaching the Word to these believers. And so one thing we see is it's as awesome as the Holy Spirit is, spiritual movements can't just survive on the Holy Spirit alone. What we also need is the Spirit of truth. He is the Spirit of truth. He inspired the Scriptures. We need to invest deeply in the Scriptures as well. And this is why so many of us here have invested so much of our time learning the Word. This is why... I, a lot of people here in this room have spent a year and a half straight Wednesday nights for three hours in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. <laughs> learning theology, learning the practical application of that theology. 
This is why so many of us spend hours each week meeting with another believer one-on-one to learn the scriptures, to, to study good Christian books together, to talk about it, with them turning around and then pouring into others. That's what these did. Paul, it doesn't look like, really got too much outside of Ephesus. You know, when he writes the, the, the letter to the church at Colossae, he's, he, it's obvious he hasn't been there. The dude that he trained planted that church, though, and the one at Laodicea, probably. And so these guys were being equipped, learning the word, and then going out and teaching that word to other people as well. And this movement on the, the, Holy, the power and guidance of the Holy Spirit and the power of the living and active scriptures... I mean, this is like, this is textbook right here. This is about as good as it gets in Paul's ministry. This three-year stint that he stays at Ephesus. He also wrote the letter to the Corinthians here. The, the letter of 1 Corinthians was written during this time when he's at Ephesus. And if you've read that letter, you know there's a lot of problems in that church at Corinth that he just planted. So he's kind of juggling both. You know, on the one hand, he's, he's getting reports from Corinth. He even makes a quick trip to Corinth. He, said, he calls it a painful visit. Sometime here when he's at Ephesus, a quick trip by sea there and back. Then he writes the letter to the Corinthians. There's problems there. They don't trust Paul. And so on the one hand, he's got this awesome movement going here at Ephesus. And he's also juggling what's going on at Ephesus and trying to get things on track there. Luke really doesn't tell us too much about these two years at Corinth. But what we do know is this was a time of great strides for the gospel but also great opposition from God's enemy. You know, you read about revivals and you're like, that just sounds like everything was awesome all the time. And you talk to people that are enemies, it's like, no. It's actually, you feel anxious. You feel there's, there's blows and counter blows. God's enemy is not gonna allow anything to go unopposed. Paul writes to the Corinthians about what's going on there. He says, look guys, I'm gonna stay here at Ephesus until the festival of Pentecost. I really wanna come to you guys, but... There's a wide open door for great work here, although many oppose me. Yeah, when God opens a door, you go through it. You know, when God makes a hole in the offensive line, you run through that hole as fast as you can. But at the same time, he says, many oppose me. Don't forget about the defense there. The linebackers waiting to level whoever goes through that hole. This is a war. This is spiritual warfare at the, really the, the center of magic. And that whole part of the Roman Empire, the place famous for its Ephesian writings, its magic scrolls, many oppose me. He says, he says also in 1 Corinthians, he says, I fought wild beasts at Ephesus. And I don't think he's talking about literal wild beasts. I think he's talking about his opponents. They were ferocious, wild beast-like in their opposition. Of course, he knew it was God's enemy, Satan, who was behind all of this. He shares a little bit more of how he was affected by this in his second letter to the Corinthians, written shortly after he leaves Ephesus. Here's what he says. He says, We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. It's Ephesus, probably. That's where it was. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so we despaired of life itself. Deep depression. He's so weighed down. He feels like he's despairing even of life. He says, we, we thought we'd received the sentence of death. We didn't think we were going to make it. But this happened that we might rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. 
And so Paul says, even in this time of great spiritual advancement, God is still at work in his life. He's still breaking Paul. He's still teaching Paul the value of suffering and how that suffering should drive him closer to Christ. That's the value of suffering in our lives. Don't expect Christian work without opposition or suffering. Don't think you're doing something wrong because you're experiencing opposition. No, we must fight through. Sometimes for years. And really, it's a battle that, that we, we won't lay down our armor until we lay down our lives. At least that's my hope. Well, at Ephesus, God gave Paul the power to perform unusual miracles. Not just your normal miracles, your everyday miracles. <laughs> Extraordinary miracles. Luke is explicit on this. What kind of miracles? Check it out. Well, when handkerchiefs wore aprons, literally when, when sweat rags, these are sweat rags that he's talking about here, that had merely touched Paul's skin, and Luke is explicit on the skin part, the doctor, using the term there only once in the New Testament. The, when the sweat rags that were on his skin were placed on sick people, they were healed of their diseases. Evil spirits were expelled. Gross. What is going on here? Well, something similar did happen to Jesus. This lady kind of burst through the crowd one time in his ministry, and she's like, if I can just touch his robe, I'll get healed. And she did, and she was. But then Jesus stopped the procession. He said, who touched me? Made her come forward. And he said, look, your faith is what healed you there, okay? And so... um, there's something here. I don't understand. I don't really see anything like this. I guess that's why it's an unusual miracle. Kind of makes sense in this, ma- this, ma- this center of magic, though. Um, it's unusual. Not even this, it doesn't even really say Paul was behind this. He wasn't pushing it. Um, but, I mean, it literally says they carried away his sweat rags and put them on people. She <laughs> almost wonder if Paul, like, you know, it's 11 a.m., it's, it's time to close up shop at the tent maker. Tent makers are us or whatever. He goes out to teach at Tyrannus. He comes back and he's like, Oh, who stole my sweat rag? (laughs) Those crazy kids. (laughs) Just says it happened. Uh, It's obviously God affirming what he's doing here. It also goes on to explicitly denounce magic. It's not, not that very different from modern healers. They'll sell their prayer costs. They're like, for a, a, do, a donation of whatever you want. But the more you give, that really reflects your faith, and you'll, you'll get even more back. Send away for one of these prayer cloths. This is an ad from uh, Benny Hinn's website. You can just see the buckets of prayer cloths they've got ready to send out to anyone who sends a donation. That's not what we're talking about. He didn't charge for these. No. This was just something that, that it seems like something God was doing here. And um, not a way to bilk old people out of their social security check or anything like that, okay? This is, this is un- unusual miracles here at Ephesus. Well, talk about unusual spiritual activity. This group of Jews was traveling from town to town, casting out evil spirits. We got a, these traveling Jewish exorcists. 
And they tried to use the name of the Lord Jesus in their incantation. You know, they're all about the magic formulas, the magic spells, the magic potions. So they're like, hey, it looks like Jesus works on some things. Let's go ahead and throw his name in the stew. Let's use that to cast out a demon, see what it gets us. Saying, I command you in the name of Jesus, who Paul preaches, come out. It was seven sons of Sceva, who was a leading priest, who were doing this. Apparently, this is some kind of family business here. Their dad is like a real prominent priest. They were like, there was seven of them, seven on one demon here. Let's see what happens. Well, the one time they tried it, the evil spirit replied, I know Jesus. I know Paul. But who are you? <laughs> it's funny now. <laughs> I don't think they were laughing. Uh, in the name of Jesus, who Paul preaches, come out. Yeah, I heard you. And I know Jesus. And I know Paul. But who are you? These spirits are already kind of angry, I imagine, that, that Christianity is moving in and just driving out the darkness, okay? They had such a, such a foothold in this area here. This one was so mad. The man with the evil spirit leaped on them, overpowered them, and attacked them, all seven, one on seven, with such violence that they fled from the house naked and battered. Seven dignified Jewish traveling exorcists go into the house. Seven bleeding naked Jewish exorcists run out of the house. So apparently demons obviously can possess people. They know about Jesus. They also know about followers of Jesus. And they know who's not. Like these guys, it's not about a magic word, okay? It's about a relationship with Christ. Does Jesus know you? Is his spirit dwelling inside of you? Are you his? Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world, John writes. Well, that story about what happened spread quickly through all Ephesus to Jews and Greeks alike. And a solemn fear descended on the city in the name of the Lord Jesus was greatly honored. This became famous. And many who had become believers confessed their sinful practices. A number of them who'd been practicing sorcery brought their incantation books and burned them in a public bonfire. Yeah, so what some think here is that these were not brand new converts because of this, but it almost sounds like the, the, the tense, the, the force of the verbs here is that these guys had become Christians, but they still kind of had their secret magic scrolls tucked away in that chest back in the corner of their room. They were still kind of doing both, and then they saw this. And they realize that this is true. I can't be hiding this anymore. I can't have this secret life with the occult and also be a professing Christian. It's one or the other. God sees it all as well. And so finally, they took these scrolls and they brought them out and they burned them. And this, there are apparently some wealthy believers. You see the extent, the size of the church and the wealth here by this next statement. The value of the books they burned was several million dollars. Whoa. Okay, so one, one lesson here is the occult is real and needs to be taken seriously. It's no surprise that in this center of occult magic stronghold, 
we see the book of Ephesians give the longest teaching on spiritual warfare in the whole New Testament. Paul says our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the unseen forces of spiritual darkness in the heavenly places. And they knew that all too well, and Paul had seen it with his own eyes. It needs to be taken seriously. Some of you have experience with this, with the occult. It needs to be renounced. There needs to be a decisive break with it. Not just, I'm not, if, if you got stuff, burn it. Destroy it. You know, they didn't just put this stuff up on eBay or have a garage sale. They weren't like, oh, I spent a lot of money on these scrolls. I might as well get something out of it. They were like, no, this has got to go. Must be renounced. Explicitly renounced. Honestly, if you've got, if you've got people, um, you know, uh, parents or grandparents who are really into the occult, uh, I, would, I would talk to God about that and have kind of a, a direct renunciation there. Where it's like, I want to renounce this. I give this completely over to you. I know Jesus now, and this is yours. And I want you to protect me from this. He's the only one who can protect you. Some of us walk around terrified of the occult. You need to get linked up with the only one who can save you. There might be broader application here as well. There might be some of us here who are Christians, but we still kind of got our secret sin. We're not telling anyone, hidden away. We think we can do both. No. It's time to come clean with that as well. God sees that. It's time to make a break and live wholeheartedly for Jesus Christ. And it says this had a very powerful effect on the church. The message about the Lord spread widely and had a powerful effect. And so this is just, this revival is just exploding here. Afterward, Paul felt compelled by the Spirit to go over to Macedonia and Achaia, that's Corinth, before going to Jerusalem. He's basically going to make a tour of the, the churches from the second missionary journey, apparently. And after I go to Jerusalem, he said, I must go on to Rome. Well, he's got to go to Jerusalem because he's got a collection he's taking for the Jews there. We're going to read about that in the next couple of weeks. But he says, after that, I'm going to Rome, which is true, but not exactly in the way that Paul thinks he's going to go to Rome. More on that later in Acts. In the meantime, though, he stayed at Ephesus. He sent his two assistants, Timothy and Erastus, ahead to Macedonia while he stayed a while longer in the province of Asia. Well, this is when trouble started to break out. About that time, serious trouble developed in Ephesus concerning the way. It began with Demetrius, a silversmith who had a large business manufacturing silver shrines of the Greek goddess Artemis. And he kept many craftsmen busy. So Paul's really starting to hit these people in the pocketbook. The idol makers are starting to grumble that nobody's buying their stuff anymore. Here's the temple of Artemis. Perhaps you recognize this picture from the game Seven Wonders. <laughs> it's because it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. 220 by 425 feet, four times larger than the Parthenon at Athens. It had 100 marble pillars. Each was 56 feet tall. Massive temple. Um, these, these idol makers made statues of Artemis and we found there's, there's actually two of these it's clay statues the silver ones probably would have been melted down but they found many of these clay statues of Artemis in this area they've got two in the archaeological museum at Ephesus here's one of them she was a goddess of fertility Posenasius writing in the middle of the second century AD says all cities worship Artemis of Ephesus individual hold her in honor above all the gods Again, this cult was the most widely followed in the ancient world, having 33 worship sites from Spain to Syria. 
The inscriptional evidence portrays her as one who answers prayer. She's proclaimed as savior. She's seen as having lordship over supernatural powers, including demons. So one, we see Christianity was getting so big at Artemis, or at, at Ephesus, it was starting to make a dent in the biggest religious cult in the world. And you can see where they're thinking that they're presenting, he's presenting Jesus as a rival, as an insult to Artemis, who is supposed to do all the things that Jesus actually did. Well, we've got Demetrius making his speech to his fellow craftsmen. He says, as you've seen and heard, this man Paul has persuaded many people that handmade gods aren't really gods at all. Isn't that self-evident? <laughs> and he's done this not only here in Ephesus, but throughout the entire province. You can see the spreading of the word throughout all that area. Of course, he says, I'm not just talking about the loss of public respect for our business. I'm also concerned that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will lose its influence and that Artemis, this magnificent goddess, worshipped throughout the province of Asia and all around the world, will be robbed of her great prestige. And we're losing a lot of money. <laughs> At this time, their anger boiled and they began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! <laughs> Not bad! Great! <laughs> Soon the whole city was filled with confusion. Everyone rushed to the amphitheater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, probably the guy from, from Thessalonica, who were Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. The amphitheater, they found this at Ephesus. Look at this thing! 25,000 person capacity. This is what you would have seen when you sailed up and walked right into ancient Ephesus. This was the first thing you saw. And they all rushed here and they started packing out the amphitheater. And it says, Paul heard about what's happening. He heard his buddies were in there. He wanted to go in too, but the believers, they wouldn't let him. They're holding him back. He's like, I'm going to go in there and die like Samson. some of the officials of the province, and Luke again uses exactly the right term, the Asiarchs. He knew the right term in Philippi. He knew the right term at Thessalonica. He knew the right term at Athens and Corinth. And he knows the right term here. Maybe because he was either there or had direct eyewitness testimony. He knows this stuff. He's a good historian. Excellent. The Asiarchs, these guys, they're actually very wealthy, elected city officials, and it says they were friends with Paul. So he was leading some of the big fish to Christ as well here at Ephesus, and they're like, look, Paul, they sent a message to him begging him, don't risk your life by entering the amphitheater. We'll handle this, okay? Well, inside, the people were all shouting. Some were shouting one thing. Some were shouting another. Everything was in confusion. In fact, most of them didn't even know why they were there. <laughs> Loud noises! <laughs> What are we shouting about? I love lamp. <laughs> well, the Jews in the crowd, they pushed Alexander forward and they told him to explain the situation. Is it possible this is the Alexander from 1 Timothy 1.19 and 2 Timothy 4.14? The heretic? Who Paul had to kick out of the church? Who he says, watch out for Alexander the coppersmith? He did me much harm. 
It makes sense for him to be at a gathering of the Smiths Guild, the idol makers. They push him forward. He's, they tell him to explain the situation. He motions for silence. He tried to speak, but when they saw he was a Jew, they just started shouting again. The anti-Semitism here that you see throughout. And they kept it up for about two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! 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 <laughs> you know, they were kind of going around the stadium, A-R-T-E-M-I. <laughs> you know, they had the t-shirt cannons out. They got, Marcy May came out, played the Ephesian Nest, you know, fight song or whatever. It was quite the pep rally. Their only response to Christianity is just to shout themselves hoarse, though. And at last, the mayor, the grammatus, which is also exactly the right term for that the top guy there at Ephesus, was able them to quiet down enough to speak. Citizens of Ephesus. Everyone knows that Ephesus is the official guardian of the temple of the great Artemis, whose image fell down to us from heaven, official sponsor of Artemis's image. <laughs> we know her image fell down from heaven, right? This is an undeniable fact. <laughs> You should just stay calm and not do anything rash. You've brought these men here. They've stolen nothing from the temple. They've not spoken against our goddess. If Demetrius and the craftsmen here have a case against them, the courts are in session. The officials can hear the case at once. Let them make formal charges. And if there are complaints about other matters, they can be settled in a legal assembly. I'm afraid we're, being in, danger. we're in danger of being charged with rioting by the Roman government, since there's no cause for all of this commotion. And if Rome demands an explanation, we won't know what to say. Then he dismissed them, and they dispersed. And that's the end of Paul's time at Ephesus. Well, let's draw a few conclusions here. <laughs> First of all, what do we see at Ephesus? We saw the importance of the Holy Spirit, right? We need to have the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, you are not a Christian. We also should have a regular personal experience of the Holy Spirit. It should be a, a regular part of our lives as Christians. If not, you should talk to the Lord about that. Talk to a mature believer about it too. We saw the importance of teaching the Scriptures as well, that the Holy Spirit alone is not enough to power this movement. It's the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. They set Apollos on... Right on, the, on the right track with the Word of God, he explained. He taught these 12 disciples of John the Baptist. He taught for two years there. After three months in the synagogue, and the Word of God was going out powerfully into that whole area, turning that area upside down. It's worth investing in the Word of God, and, it's, and it's, we need to keep that at the center of our instruction of others and of our ministry. We saw the reality of spiritual warfare that this was a town that was financially devastated. People were pumping so much money into their fear of the occult and trying to protect themselves. Spiritual realm is real. And yet, what we see even more than that is the importance of having Jesus in your corner. And that's something that you can get tonight. You can have Jesus' spirit come and, and dwell inside of you. And then you can say, greater is the one who's in me than the one who's in the world. 
And that's the church at Ephesus. Yeah, Lord, how cool to read about the way you moved here in this, this city 2,000 years ago. Thanks that that's not the last time you moved in powerful ways. Thanks for how we see you moving in our midst right here in this large city. We see spiritual movement taking place here. God, I pray that we would hold firmly to your Holy Spirit and to your word, that we would take our, our teaching and our equipping seriously in your word, God, and that we would turn around and give it to others. And I pray too, God, that um, we would not dabble with things like the, 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 the occult realm, but that we would just boldly declare your truth and stand on our identity, Lord, and that we would see you moving in powerful ways like you did here at Ephesus. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.